are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are discussing harm reduction today. This is a fascinating look at a very controversial topic. We have Paula, who is an expert at harm reduction and has given many lectures on this. We're going to discuss what is harm reduction, the history of harm reduction, and the evidence for harm reduction, and some of the arguments against harm reduction. Some of the elements of harm reduction are education for safe use, injection education, safe injection sites, naloxone, medication-assisted treatment, syringe exchange programs and services, fentanyl test strips, STI testing and treatment, PrEP and PEP, and safer sex supplies and then implementation of harm reduction and what that looks like. What is the definition of harm reduction? I think that is really important for people to understand what that means and the philosophy behind that. I'm fascinated by it. I think it's something that we need to expand our view of as practitioners of folks who have substance use disorder. And according to the CDC, harm reduction is an approach to policies, programs, or practices that aim to reduce the negative health and social impacts of substance use. Generally, it's it's a set of practical strategies to minimize the negative consequences of use. Those consequences can, do not only need to be health and social, they can also be legal. And it includes a spectrum of safer use, managed use, and it can also include working towards abstinence, but it doesn't necessarily expect abstinence. So harm reduction strategies meet people where they are, but as one of my favorite harm reductionists here in Utah says, it, it meets them where they're at, but it doesn't leave them there. So you don't just say, oh, here you are. It actually gives them the tools to elevate and escalate their situation. I love that. I think that is such an important thing where they're at, but don't leave them there. Right. And it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, when you read about, if when you start reading about it, you can just read and read and go, go into it. But it also shifts power to the vulnerable people and populations. And that's something that's really important that I think I have not understood before. But there's a huge power differential when we're in medicine, when we're treating patients and in treatment world, when we're treating people with substance use disorder, harm reduction approach seeks to shift the power. So shifts the power differential away from the provider, away from people with privilege, basically to the vulnerable people and the population, and it becomes participant and people focused. And it really runs on the dual principles of dignity and autonomy. And I think if we can just remember those things, that when you think about approaching a patient who is really struggling with alcohol use or any substance use or any risky behavior, actually, it doesn't even need to be addiction related to a substance. If we can bring ourselves back to engaging with them with the principles of dignity and autonomy, you're living in the harm reduction world. And I think harm reduction, you said it yourself, it carries a lot of controversial connotations. And a lot of people hear harm reduction and they just shut right down or they conjure up what what they think harm reduction is. But if we move away from that term in the traditional sense of, the, of it, 
and just think of it being a, a set of practical strategies to re- mitigate and reduce negative consequences based in the principles of dignity and autonomy for the people who are vulnerable, we might be getting it half right. I think that's such an excellent point. And any time that we can have a positive encounter with our patients and try to just engage them in healthcare and then be able to bring them in, you're increasing their chance of success, right? Also, researched this topic and read so many different essays and different points of views. I think the one thing that has stuck with me is the one point of harm reduction. And this is particularly when we're dealing with addiction with such a high mortality. And so this is something where patients have this, this is lethal consequences of their substance use. You can't treat a dead patient. If we are not able to engage our patients, we can't treat them. So we need to use whatever strategies we can. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think uh, people who are anti-harm reduction, because it seems to be permissive or condoning drug use or high-risk behavior, we, it actually is not the point of harm reduction efforts. It's, it's not a permissive, condoning environment, and it does promote treatment, but it's a non-coercive and participant-focused treatment. And exactly like you said, I mean, you know, if the risk of dying from an overdose or from the other consequences relating to their drug use are higher than they're willing to engage in getting well, then we're just at odds, right? We just end up as an impasse. And I think that that's where we live a lot of times in medicine. And I can't tell you the number of times, and I know it's out of frustration, but the number of times I'm reviewing medical records from inpatient stays. And I see folks who've got serious addiction as the driver of their admission for whatever serious infection they have. And on their problem list is non-compliant behavior or patient, you know, patients using drugs in the room and all these things. It's very frustrating to choose to treat folks who don't seem to understand that they're dying from their chronic hepatitis B infection that's caused cirrhosis, or they're dying from their endocarditis, or their acute alcoholic pancreatitis, and we don't understand why they don't want to stop. But it, it's just a lot more complicated than that. And I think that's why harm reduction world, this topic, is really interesting and there's a lot to learn as we engage with the, these ideas and concepts that you said we're very familiar with in other arenas of public health already. We just, something about it makes us a little bit uncomfortable in a lot of ways. So, you know, we could take a historical and a scientific approach and look at the evidence and see what it is that bothers people and then see what it is that we're discovering about efforts that we're trying to employ to help people. It's like you just said, Paula, we use it everywhere in medicine without even thinking about it. I do this with my diabetic patients. So we have a diabetic patient who's out of control and we know that exercise will help their diabetes, will help their cardiovascular disease. And even though 30 to 45 minutes of exercise every day is recommended, what do we tell them? Can you just walk five minutes a day? Let's just start there. This is no different. Now, I understand that some of the harm reduction strategies we're looking at legal issues, but we have lethal consequences with these patients if we don't engage them in health. And I think that needs to be remembered here that we have got to have some way to engage our patients. What we're talking about is we've got to start the conversation with our patients. 
where are you, where are you now? What can we do to help you now? So let's, yeah, let's start. So a little bit of the history. Well, I mean, the history varies according to where you live in the world, but specifically history of harm reduction for substance use in this country, as far as I can tell, really was born during the HIV epidemic in the 80s, where public health officials in the medical community realized that we really needed to do a better job of preventing, you know, sexually transmitted infections and bloodborne infections that were transmitted by shared injection equipment from injection drug users. Other countries, though, I think were ahead of us. And, and you know, some of that from based out of uh, Europe. Yeah. So, I mean, if we look at like safe injection sites, but basically what this is, is it's a medical supervision for people who want to inject pre-obtained drugs. So the, this is the key. You're not supplying drugs to them. At a safe injection site, a substance user is provided with a sterile injection equipment and you have medically trained staff to monitor them, provide overdose reversal medication if someone overdoses and education and referrals for treatment are provided. But the first like safe injection site opened in 1986 in Switzerland. The estimate today is over 100 sites operate in 66 cities across Europe and Australia. The first safe injection site in North America opened in Vancouver in 2003 called Insight is the most well studied because that one was put as a pilot program. The estimates are is more than 3.6 million people have used that facility, though 6,400 people have overdosed, not one single person has died. And we'll get into more of the data later, but that is just really interesting. That safe injection site alone in the United States. And Paula, you have some of that, some of those services. Yeah, I mean, there's different, uh, you know, need, needle exchange or syringe exchange programs, they, they vary by state. So federal ban of syringe exchange programs was only lifted in 2016, which is just incredible. State by state legislation governs where syringe exchange programs can exist. And we still have several states, actually many states in the country where syringe exchange services are illegal, including Idaho, Wyoming, South Dakota, Nebraska, Texas, actually most of the Bible Belt, including Florida. And you know, you still have some federal regulations and restrictions surrounding harm reduction services, including, you know, federal ban of the use of funding for injection equipment. And in order for a syringe exchange program to exist in a state, it has to be at a region at risk for HIV and HCV. So it's we still have a long way to go in terms of that kind of work. We have, you know, just about a year or two ago, there were 200 syringe exchange programs nationally in the U.S. Now there are about 400. But if you consider how big the country is, 400 programs, that's not very many just for kind of classic traditional syringe exchange. I was really interested to read in just in Wikipedia of all places about the history of harm reduction efforts for alcohol related consequences because you know as we all know the consequences to people personally and medically and socially, legally, financially of alcohol are just enormous, way more than, than the use of opioids or stimulants. And we don't really see a lot of like active efforts towards reducing the risk of alcohol other than things that we've just come to know as normal 
life things like, you know, drunk driving laws, uh, alcohol, blood alcohol level limits. Those are all harm reduction strategies, actually, designated driver programs, things like that. But there was a time when those things didn't exist. But there's this interesting program that is highlighted in Wikipedia talking about program in Toronto, where a homeless shelter started operating as a wet shelter after the death of two folks who were experiencing homelessness, who were also drinking large amounts of alcohol. They they looked into the cause of those folks' death and they decided to open a wet shelter. And it was based on a managed alcohol principle where clients living in this shelter were served a glass of wine an hour, unless the staff determined that they were too inebriated to continue. So what they found, though, was that they reduced the amount of folks who were out on the street, not able to seek shelter in a, in a formal sheltered um, structure, and they weren't seeking alcohol from unsafe sources such as mouthwash or rubbing alcohol. And they saw a great reduction in the use of emergency medical facilities and also in police encounters. So they found that those encounters, both with the emergency room and the police, were cut in half just by opening this wet shelter. And the study of this was actually published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal back in 2006. And the other outcome that they found and they published was that serving people alcohol in the shelter, in the sweat shelter, also drastically reduced their overall alcohol consumption. That the folks who entered the program were drinking an average of 46 drinks a day. And when they um, had been in the program, they dropped their consumption to eight drinks a day. So I think that's really interesting. And uh, we can talk more about syringe exchange and safe injection sites. But I'm just like thinking, man, what are we doing for folks who just really are having trouble with alcohol? And this idea of wet shelters was just really fascinating to me. That, so, that is so interesting because yeah. I've not read that study. Yeah. But isn't it just interesting? Again, when you give people support, access to just any kind of resource, immediately you see a decrease. And that's, and we'll get to some of those studies. We always think that well, you're just, you're going to increase use and you're going to, and that's one of the arguments is that people are going to use more. That's not what the studies are showing. People actually use less. Yeah, they use less and also it costs the system less. And there's lots of, I mean, when you look at the history of harm reduction, you end up reading a lot about opioid treatment. So treatment for opioid use disorder with either methadone or even heroin, because the use of heroin for treatment of an opioid use disorder is employed in countries other than the U.S., and uh, they found that in countries where they give safe heroin, so like in a safe injection site type model, but and it's also heroin that's been sourced and is, is not contaminated, they found that people drastically reduce criminal activity. And it costs um, about a third, the cost of these programs cost about a third of the cost of someone in prison for the same amount of time. So if you're in one of these heroin distributed safe injection facilities in the UK, the cost of that is a third of that same person just being in prison for a year. So anyway, there's a lot, there's a lot of interesting things yeah. um, to be read. And it's just, it's just difficult to kind of wrap your head around it, right? It is on safe injection sites. So those are very limited in the United States. So we only have four cities, correct, Paula? Philadelphia, 
Ithaca, New York, Seattle, and San Francisco. And there was one article I'd heard about some safe injection sites that may be running but not reporting just because of the legal consequences. Let's talk a little bit about some of that data because it is really interesting. Again, that's those are some of the times the most controversial is safe injection sites that I think most of our listeners probably have who are maybe a against harm reduction, or even when we talk with legislators. And I'll be honest, like 10 years ago, before my training in addiction medicine, first learned about this, I probably would have been like, I don't I don't know how I feel about this, right? The, the arguments against these, there's always this, they talk about increased crime where a safe injection site would be located. They talk about, the, this is the arguments against them. You're going to be encouraging use, or you're going to ha- be having people using more. The data coming out of this, just from Insight in Vancouver, they're showing, number one, reduction in overdose deaths, which is if you're going to just talk about a cost savings alone from EMS calls, hospitalization, and the medical consequences, that by itself, the cost is overwhelmingly on the side of safe injection site. You're, you're not having needles improperly disposed of, so that so that was one of the argument. And you're reducing your infectious disease, all included there. So the the one estimate they said for just San Francisco alone was a cost reduction of 3.5 million. The next argument for this was there was one study that was showing 30% of those who are accessing these centers are converting to treatment. And this is exactly what we want, right? You are engaging people in care. So it's, it's not just you're reducing their risk of HIV, hepatitis C and B, and reducing their risk of endocarditis and serious consequences of their substance abuse. You are engaging them in healthcare and you're reducing their risk of overdose, now they have access to treatment when they want treatment. And I think that's the key. With this controversy with safe injection sites, this was one interview that I heard was really interesting, is right now there are some criticisms that they tend to be often lay people who have just CPR first aid training that are staffing these. What would a safe injection site look like if you had more medically trained and better addiction trained personnel staffing these? So if these were able to be better funded, how much better could we do? If you think about that, I mean, just taking that step forward, if we would actually, a lot of these feeling like they're running underground, understaffed, and sometimes often feeling like underqualified. We have some amazing people who are who are out doing this work that, and it's not the medical community that's not doing it. Let me tell you, I know in our city, it's not. It's, yeah, it's it's these amazing humans who yeah. often have lived yeah, experience or they it. have a personal experience from a loved one who has passed from an overdose who are pioneering the work and leading the charge for trying to get safe injection site legislature passed. They're doing, they're running 
syringe exchange programs. I mean, that's true, right? That's true for two of the big, three, three of the biggest programs here in Salt Lake. They're all run by people either with lived experience and a family member with overdose. They don't always involve medical people. Now, that's not a bad thing, but I, because they're doing the most important work, which is connecting with the community who needs it and in a legal way and actually got the legislation passed to begin with to do what we're able to do in this state, state by state, it's different. I think integration of traditional medical communities with this kind of work is really important and we're, we're not quite there yet. I totally agree with you. But if we look at the evidence for syringe exchange programs, which are ahead of the game in terms relative to safe injection sites, and also if you consider what typically comes with syringe exchange programming, we have actually pretty robust evidence in the literature surrounding those kinds of programs. We know that we have significant reduction of HIV, hepatitis C, and B transmission when you have access to syringe exchange, especially when you have free access as opposed to one-to-one access, and we can talk about what that means. The CDC reports about a 50% reduction in HIV transmission from a large Cochrane review when you have free access to syringe exchange programming, and then there's a study by Care et al. who actually reported a 90 percent reduction in HIV transmission. That's huge. I mean, especially when you have communities where you have flagged high rates of HCV and HIV from shared equipment. We also know that where there are syringe exchange services where people can access clean injection supplies, you have a reduction in skin and soft tissue and other infections. And so the hospital costs for injection drug-related infections are greatly reduced. There was a specific study looking at the hospital costs for bacterial endocarditis admissions. And we also know that cities that have access to syringe exchange services, you actually see a reduction in emergency department utilization, which makes sense. I mean, most of the medical issues that we encounter when we go out on outreach is our skin and soft tissue infections like, you know, cellulitis and abscesses. And folks otherwise, you know, if they don't have access to wound care supplies through their syringe exchange, often are or have to go to the emergency room, or they don't go and they just develop into more serious infections. That's such an interesting point there that you just 20% reduction in just infection rate. I mean, that's that's big because that's a very common reason for emergency right. service. And those studies that are showing a 30% reduction in heroin use and 20% reduction in injection use. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing when you have formal harm reduction services. So again, you know, any we all offer harm reduction, right? In some way, when we're in medicine or mental health, we, we encourage seatbelt use, we encourage exercise, that kind of thing. But formal harm reduction, you see these kinds of statistics, like you just said, a 30% reduction in heroin use, etc. And you also see people enter, enter treatment. So you mentioned the statistics that have been coming out of the uh, safe injection sites, but we have similar kinds of rates coming out of participants of a syringe exchange are shown to be five times as likely to enter substance use disorder treatment than non-participants. So I think that's important to highlight when we're talking to legislators or people who are naysayers surrounding formal harm reduction sites or programs is to say, look, we're not, again, this is not permissiveness. This is not encouraging 
encouraging high risk behavior. And folks who are engaged with syringe exchange or programs are five times more likely to enter treatment. And where they're also less likely to die. I mean, part of syringe exchange and harm reduction outreach includes the education surrounding overdose events and safe use in general, how to use drugs in a safer way. And of course, the distribution of naloxone, which has been just incredible in, in and life-changing, literally life-changing for many, many people. I mean, in Utah, the program Utah Naloxone has has had incredible results with like something like 44,000 reversals documented since it started. You know, in Utah, this, the law is that every syringe exchange encounter has to include education. So it's not just the exchange of a used syringe with a, with a clean syringe. It has to include education and also includes linkage to treatment. The other thing that we're have some data on, which I think is really interesting, and we're seeing more and more of, which is good, are fentanyl test strips. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about what actually is included in harm reduction work. But we've got good data showing that people who inject drugs who have access to fentanyl test strips, who have a positive fentanyl test strip result, have five times the odds of changing their drug use behavior compared to those who have a negative result. So again, these efforts are being studied and they are sh- being shown to have some positive outcomes. And the other thing that that was interesting when interesting when we're looking at the evidence surrounding formal harm reduction measures is it doesn't only affect people who use drugs and the medical community, it affects law enforcement. And uh, needle stick injuries are a huge risk and a huge concern for law enforcement and first responders. And safe needle disposals, the back end, right, of syringe exchange is you get needles back and you're able to give safe disposal boxes to folks. And there's a study that shows that improperly disposed of of needles are eight times higher in cities without syringe exchange programs versus cities that have them. So, you know, you have basically syringe exchange services in San Francisco versus Miami, basically, and Miami has far more um, improperly disposed needles versus San Francisco. So I think I think that's kind of interesting. And there's a lot more data we could look at, but that's just kind of a, a little snapshot of the different areas that you see reduced costs. We didn't talk about incarceration, but um, you do see a reduced incarceration when you have concurrent syringe exchange and substance use treatment as well. So yeah, so if you're a health provider, I mean, what what can you do? What, you know, what can you personally do or what can your health system do? What can you and your clinic do? You know, there's there's an overall approach and there are elements to this. And I, I want to give credit to the Utah Department of Health. They do a very good harm reduction navigator training. And I took a lot of the information for a talk I give and then some of this podcast from their training. But you want to approach and understand that abstinence-based treatment is not always an option for people, even though we want it to be. And that relapse is part of the process. You know, if we look at the stages of change, we remember that returning back to pre-contemplation or contemplation is, is very typical in any kind of behavior. And people may not always be ready to quit or they may not choose. They may not just choose not to quit. They may, you know, be in that stage where they're just not ready. And um, motivational interviewing really is important. But if we look at the basic roles goals and components of harm reduction for substance use and alcohol use, what do we want to do, basically? 
I mean, what, what's our goal? But basically, we want to find out what their goals are. But as a medical community, I think we want to reduce any overdose events, right? You said a dead patient is not a patient that's ever going to enter treatment. So we want to reduce overdose events and reduce fatal overdose events for sure by giving safe, safer use supplies, education, naloxone distribution, education about overdoses so that people understand the law, understand how they are or not protected. And then we want to provide access to treatment and medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder, especially. And we're finding out of some interesting studies that rapid access to MOUD is key. Rapid access, whether it's in an emergency department or if it's from EMS, or if it's from coming to your clinic and getting started on BUP right away, or maybe it's a mobile clinic, or maybe it's linking syringe exchange programs in town to MOUD through your clinic. So establishing those partnerships is really important. And then of course, reduction of the transmission of infections, whether it's it's bloodborne infections from injecting drugs or it's sexually transmitted infections, as well as reducing skin and soft tissue infections and other serious infections like BE and osteomyelitis and things like that. And we do that again by educating folks about safer use techniques and supplies, making sure they have access to supplies. I've had folks come into our clinic. We started um, our own syringe exchange program in our clinic. And it, Darlene, it has been so cool and so fun and so interesting. And it's amazing what kind of the shape people bring in, like the, the syringes and needles, they bring in these bent, blunt needles because they just can't access any others. And I'm just, oh, just it's just terrible. Anyway, and then of course, testing and offering testing and treatments. A lot of the syringe exchange programs that operate on the streets will offer rapid HCV and rapid HIV testing, which is amazing because you can do on the spot antibody testing. But then of course, you do need access. They need somewhere to send their folks who test positive for antibodies for confirmation testing and then treatment. And we want to get people treated right away for hep C, regardless of their use status. And we want to offer people PrEP for HIV prophylaxis and PEP when it's appropriate as well. And again, timing is key. And so working on reducing barriers for prior authorizations and financial barriers and educational barriers for people who are interested and willing to take those medications. So those are kind of the basic overall approaches. And we can talk more about the individual components of a formal harm reduction program, at least the one that we've created in our clinic. I mean, what kind of successes are you seeing in your clinic? Well, I mean, we've we started program just in February of this year, because we have, well, like most of you listening, I'm sure we have a very vulnerable population and of substance users, many of whom experience homelessness and many of whom continue to inject drugs or use drugs. And it just seems ridiculous that we're trying all, we were trying really hard to treat substance use disorder without address the glaring problem that people didn't have access to clean supplies. They were coming in with abscesses all the time and we were treating their abscesses, but I'm like, this would just be easier if we were able to give them the supplies they need. And I have an amazing AmeriCorps volunteer who's working in our clinic right now. And it was a project she was really interested in. And so we um, both went through the harm reduction navigator training with our state health department and then went through the process of applying to be a syringe exchange program based in our clinic. And we're a, we're a primary care-based clinic that treats addiction. So we're kind of a blended clinic. And the kinds of successes we've had have been really remarkable. We didn't really advertise it very broadly because we, we didn't feel like we had a ton of bandwidth to be like a very robust syringe exchange program like 
like the ones that are mobile, like Utah Harm Reduction Coalition goes out and does thousands of syringe exchange encounters a week. And we, we knew we weren't really capable of doing that, but we developed, we had some core services that we already did in our clinic. You know, we already offered MOUD and we gave naloxone and we prescribed naloxone and we did a lot of aggressive hepatitis C testing and treatment and PrEP and PEP and long acting reversible contraceptives. But by adding syringe exchange, we added sterile syringes and clean injection materials. We added used syringe disposal and personal sharps containers. We got a ton more naloxone thanks to the state and to Utah naloxone through. Uh, and then we also got a lot of fentanyl test strips that we could give out, wound care supplies, a bunch of safer sex kits. And then we were able to offer rapid HCV testing, which was helpful for people who you can't do phlebotomy on. And we've had, let's see, up until we started in the middle of February, we've we've exchanged about 6,000 syringes and we've had 110 exchange encounters, which I'm really proud of considering it's not our main focus of our clinic. And what's really cool is out of those encounters, out of those total participants, you know, several of them, about half of them were existing patients that we had who we kind of started the program for, people who were already our patients, who we identified were still using, you know, methamphetamine, heroin, and we wanted to offer these services too. But then we've had community participants who've accessed our syringe exchange just just off the street. They heard about us from other syringe exchange programs or from um, internet or from signage, and they've just come in. And what's really cool is about a third of those people who've just come in to engage in syringe syringe exchange have now become new patients at our clinic, and they've established care. And that's what's so exciting is they've now established care, either requesting MOUD, which we've been pretty much able to start them on right away, or they've requested HIV, hepatitis C, STI testing, or they've requested um, psychiatry. We're, we're going to publish, hopefully publish our our work because we feel, I feel pretty excited about the fact that you can embed formal harm reduction in the clinic and have this kind of outcome, you know, and we have a lot to learn. We, we really do. We do stuff wrong and we're learning the game and our fellow syringe exchange programs who do syringe exchange and harm reduction as their main work, as opposed to medical clinic work, they gently correct us like, Hey, you guys don't do this. Don't do that. <laughs> But it's, <laughs> we try and take, we take it. We're like, okay, oh, yep, you're right. We shouldn't do that. But we, we're, we're working on it. And it's been very, it's been a very exciting um, addition to kind of broaden the spectrum. And, you know, we really focus on, well, we do what the law requires us to do, which is provide education. We provide naloxone. We provide education surrounding naloxone. We provide referral to treatment, which is a requirement. And of course, we provide treatment. So it doesn't necessarily mean we're self-referring, but we can self-refer. We refer people to wherever they want to go for treatment. And then we give them whatever else they need. We have safe use and inject safe injection supplies. So we give them these safe use kits that include like a cotton and a cooker sterile water, alcohol swabs, and wound care supplies. And we give them the fentanyl test strips and we give them whatever else. And um, my AmeriCorps volunteer who's working so hard, she she keeps track and she reports to the state health department database, REDCap, every encounter that we have. And then we also keep our own data of every kind of encounter we have, whether we give naloxone only with education, whether we do STI testing, whether we do syringe exchange, whether it's just safer sex kits, whether it's fentanyl test strips. And oh, one of the other things that we've found, sorry, now that you've got me talking, you won't shut me up, is that we've begun to do quite a lot of 
harm reduction um, for secondary participants. And the CDC recognizes this as a valuable, uh, what would you call it, a valuable access point. So we have quite a few folks in our clinic, obviously, who are stable. They're in recovery, doing okay. They come and see us for their buprenorphine, naloxone, their injectable buprenorphine, injectable naltrexone, but they're still in a community that is using or have high risk behavior. So they access fentanyl test strips, naloxone for, the, for their family members, for their community. And secondary participants are, are pretty important, um, according to the CDC. So we're happy to do that. And it encourage, it opens the door too, that we're a non-judgmental open clinic that people can come and we're, we're able to offer this, we can also offer this. And hey, if you ever want to stop or need help stopping, we can also help you stop. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool. I get pretty excited about it. I think that is fantastic. And I think it's really important to point out that your clinic is full wraparound services, that you are a family medicine clinic, also integrated addiction medicine. And there's just, if there's just one thing you change in your practice that helps people, whether it's now or in the future, like you said, or could prevent a catastrophic event, that's a huge change. And I think prescribing naloxone is just the easiest first step that we should all be doing. Everyone who gets a opioid prescription basically should get, if they are on chronic opioids, they should have naloxone in their hand. And anyone who uses opioids or has a history of opioid use or has a family, relative, friend, anybody should have naloxone. In fact, I think we should all just have naloxone on us all the time. <laughs> yes. Because how helpless would you feel if you were witnessing an overdose somewhere and, and you knew what the antidote was and you didn't have it? You know, there, but there are so many simple things we can do. And uh, MOUD is another harm reduction type approach. You could you could say that prescribing buprenorphine or naltrexone is harm reduction for not only opioid use disorder, for uh, alcohol use disorder. And, you know, prescribing thiamine and folate for people who are chronically drinking is a harm reduction measure as well. I have treated a lot of Wernicke's encephalopathy and I'm like, oh, if only someone had just told you to take your thiamine. I mean, obviously people don't want to always take their vitamins if they're drinking heavily, but sometimes they do. So there, there are lots of things we can do. And I agree, just planting the seed. And also it, it's not so much us doing this great thing for people. It's us learning what it is that folks need. I just think that that's, that's what I'm trying to do is just figure out, man, we're, we're just standing on this side of the river and ever, and we've got to figure out how to build the bridge across, you know? So, yeah. And it's not hard to implement more formal strategies, look at your state health department, see what programs they have, learn from your partners in your community, because they need collaborators and they need advocates. Uh, they need medical people who are willing to treat hep C, give PrEP out, give PEP out within 24, 48 hours, help with long-acting reversible contraceptives for patients who use drugs. I mean, there's all these things that our partners who are working in the field really need us as a medical community to step up to do. And we can do that pretty, pretty much pretty easily. And there's help. There are some great resources. The CDC has some great resources actually on the implementation of syringe exchange services, as well as your local state health department. And there is lots of information to be, to be consumed. Like Darlene was saying, she's been reading essays and papers and there's a lot to read and learn about about this topic for sure. And you said it best, Paula. You're standing on the river and you got to figure out how to build the bridge. Until next time. 
Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.